0: To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts, or visit slate.com slash dsmplus to get access wherever you listen.
1: Thanks. We have 12 years to avert climate catastrophe. Okay, 12 years from now, my reproductive window is going to be pretty much closed. And so it's this strange alignment between one biological clock and one planetary and political clock that were, one's urgency was making the other one feel all the more like a dilemma to act within. This is Death, Sex, and Money, the show from
0: WNYC about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I'm Anna Sale for this walk. Yeah,
1: this is awesome. Can I carry something?
0: I met author and climate researcher Britt Ray on a trailhead on the side of a two-lane road in the Santa Cruz Mountains in California. We'd asked her to take us to one of her favorite places to talk about her research into the mental health effects of climate change.
1: We're going into the Saratoga Gap Trail at the Castle Rock State Park. It's a short hike. It has a flat plateau we can set up some chairs on.
0: Britt has a PhD in science communications and is currently a postdoctoral researcher at Stanford. She has a new book out called Generation Dread, Finding Purpose in an Age of Climate Crisis, which I really loved. We all live on the same planet and are noticing different ways the changing climate is surrounding us. But of course, each of our personal risks differ markedly depending on where we live and the amount of resources we and our communities have. Britt and me, we've got a lot of power and access to resources comparatively. I wanted to talk to Britt not about the effects of climate change on our physical environments, but on our psychology, which is what she researches. Britt writes, there's a pattern to how people incorporate climate threats. Some experience mild climate anxiety, which might cause you to detach or become avoidant. As it gets more severe... The anxiety can make it harder to function or to think about much else. In Britt's case, she was obsessed with the
1: question of whether to have a baby because of climate change.
0: Do you remember being here the first time you did this trail?
1: Yes. I came on a solo walk in the woods. I wanted to explore this trail that I'd seen only on drives up the Santa Cruz Mountain Ridge. And I was really pregnant at the time.
0: Like how pregnant?
1: Like early To mid-third trimester. Okay. So beginning to have a wide stance. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) For me, it kind of came early. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just exploring, and I remember being surprised that, you know, a mile into the hike, there was then this perched platform over this rock face where there's supposed to be some waterfalls, and there were none. That's like taking a solo hike in late pregnancy and having a moment on a platform. Yeah, it was, it was a time. actually, there was a lot going on. One of my best friends had just experienced a uh, stillbirth, mm. and we were going through our pregnancies at the same time together. Oh And I think I was doing some nature bathing on purpose to try and clear my head and sort through my thoughts and feelings.:
0: Oh, you're not kidding with a platform. No, I'm not kidding. <laughs> like a boat dock in the middle of a trail. Do you remember noticing when you get to the overlook for the falls and the water wasn't running?
1: I think it felt just like yet one more reminder that we're on a bad track ecologically speaking, which the bay area is rife with. Mm-hmm. Um you understand from the news that you're experiencing the worst drought in 1,200 years. People are preparing their homes for battles with wildfires in that season that they can expect to stretch for many months longer than historically had been the way people would have to confront wildfires. Those kinds of things are part and parcel of living in this area. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I don't think I was overly moved by the lack of a waterfall. It was just one more kind of data point. And when you say people
0: are preparing for wildfire season in a different way, that included your family when you moved to this part of California, right?
1: Yeah. I remember also being pregnant while shopping for the evacuation supplies, you know, the... Oh, really? Yeah, the goggles and the hand gloves so that you can touch burning pieces of trees that might fall on your car, uh, a radio, battery, p- batteries, getting a bunch of small $1 and $5 bills to be able to use out while escaping. When you were shopping, did you go to a place or were
0: you doing that on your laptop?
1: I went to a hardware store. Uh-huh. They had a whole section. It was like evacuation kit section for the locals because everyone was going in there to to get kitted out. Uh huh. Yeah. Take me back to
0: when for you, you really think of um, it hitting you that the climate crisis life on this planet is changing and it was something that you were going to organize your life and thinking around. Mm -hmm. When did that happen for you? That happened for
1: me in 2017. Uh Uh-huh. I, like so many people, was of course aware of the climate crisis and thought it was of huge importance and concerning, but it was always this intellectual problem. You know, I'd been to climate marches, I was part of environmental clubs when I was younger and, you know, I'd watched Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth and and so on. But it wasn't until 2017 that things became profoundly emotional and kind of crossing that barrier where it was no longer just sitting as this intellectual problem that I could choose to think about at certain times, and it became really overwhelming. I was wrapping up my Ph.D. at the time and doing a lot of science communication work and reading lots of papers, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: climate science papers, conservation biology papers. And the tone was, of course, very alarming, as we've come to know well, about what's happening but in my life i was with my partner talking about maybe trying to get pregnant sometime soon and then my the torment started which was alive and connecting our family planning to the climate crisis thinking that if nothing drastically and boldly changes very quickly we can expect a very dangerous reality filled with climate chaos and forms of ecological decline and even breakdown of ecosystems, which of course has knock-on effects for food security, water security, migration crises, conflict, and so on. But it didn't seem like those aspects of what the science is painting was factoring in for friends around me who were having their babies and and I was really then starting to feel crazy for even connecting the ideas because I didn't see it mirrored or validated. Like you,
0: the question of I'm seeing this data, I'm having a very powerful emotional response and rethinking what I ought to do and what our responsibility is for thinking about unborn generations, and you're looking around and you're thinking, am I totally alone in this?
1: Like, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Exactly. Because the implications of the data are terrifying. And what would come up when you started to share that when you thought about
0: whether to become a parent was shaped by data about climate change?
1: What were comments that made you feel crazy? Well. Often it wasn't even what people would say because people were often polite if I would bring it up with them. They would listen and not necessarily refute, although sometimes they would tell me that I was being dramatic. But you can just see in their body language and how they're carrying themselves that they're not feeling it. And then I remember putting a question on Facebook back in 2017 asking, does anyone feel concerned about having kids today because of the climate crisis, just taking the temperature here within people that I know. And then this comment thread just lit up Mm. and it became this really active space for days and that was super validating. Oh, people are thinking about this. Was it primarily people of sort of childbearing range who were? But there were some older people who chimed in to say, we thought the same thing in times of heightened nuclear scare. And we got over our fears and had our babies, and you should too. What do you think that's about?
0: Why do you think there's an investment in you making a choice to, to despite climate data,
1: have kids? Well, perhaps a justification for their own decisions, perhaps a desire to not see a breakdown in the social contract between older generations and younger generations. There's also, I think, a real desire to help and to to be hopeful and to generate meaning for people. Yeah, I think it could probably be a mix of all kinds of things. But I know when I've encountered, for example, my own family members getting upset when I was questioning having kids and they could see that it was really possible that I wouldn't because of the climate crisis. It became personal and urgent that they would let me know how important, crucial, life-changing, meaningful having kids is as a human experience. And therefore, my turning away from it volitionally like this was just foolish and abandoning my own ability to have the fullest life possible.
0: Um, And where were you living in 2017?
1: I was living in Copenhagen, Denmark.
0: And you're finishing up graduate work. Was there, when you say you felt crazy, was there part of you that also felt a little bit like, look at me, where I'm living, what stage I am in my life, what I'm doing to support myself. I have the benefit. Of time and attention to focus on these feelings, like was there a way in which you felt indulgent?
1: Oh, yeah, there was, but it also became so present in my life that I didn't have much choice but to confront it because suppression wasn't working. Uh-huh. <laughs> how did it? How did you know it wasn't working? <laughs> Because I was anxious and full of rage about inaction on the climate in a way that I never before had been in my life.
0: But hmm. let's talk about the framework that you present for the level of what you carry with you as far as anxiety about climate, these increasing levels of you. Distract away or think about other things leading up to sort of a paralyzing,
1: immobilizing anxiety? Well, there was a big aha moment for me when I saw the spectrum of eco-anxiety that a wonderful climate-aware therapist named Caroline Hickman had created. And so there's these four different stages: mild, medium, significant, severe. And when the feelings are mild, it's that, you know, the person might get worried and very distressed at certain points in time, but they can be reassured by a focus on hope and optimism. Messages like, yes, this recent IPCC report is very scary, but don't worry too much because there are tons of talented, smart people working on the problem, that sort of thing. And so they still have their psychological defenses available to them. And these are unconscious. And we all have them. And we've evolved them to protect ourselves from anxiety and pain. But then when they get to a more medium stage, okay, it's bursting through. The distress is making those defenses fail a little bit more often. When it gets to that significant level, things start to change. There will be minimal defenses against the anxiety. The emotions are so overwhelming that it really becomes this climate trauma lens that the person starts the scene through. This means that they might make major changes in their life, their relationships. You know, if couples are contemplating whether or not to have a child, one wants to, the other one doesn't because of the climate crisis. This can cause a rift. But when we get to the severe level, it's not anxiety, it's terror. Someone might not be able to work or play or be in relationships or concentrate or sleep. They might be suicidal. And there are young people who are attempting suicide because of their climate anxiety. This is happening already, and it is documented.
0: As you were noticing how you were experiencing these feelings and then studying how practitioners and experts were describing the way others experience these feelings. Did you, did you think at times like, Oh, I just must have like underlying anxiety. And this has become a way, this is my intrusive thought. Is it, if we are feeling climate anxiety, is that because we are experiencing anxiety and if it weren't for
1: the data on climate, it would be showing up in different ways in our lives. So I never identified as an anxious person. I felt pretty easygoing and laid back about a lot of scenarios that I know anxious friends of mine react differently to. So for me, it was never this pathologizing thought of, okay, this is just my mind doing what it does, and here it has a different object of attention. And and yet, at the same time, there were questions of, okay, am is there something wrong with me? I mean, why is my reaction so significant? And the the aha moment for me looking at that um, sequence of feelings, the spectrum of eco-anxiety for me was that I saw clearly I was in the significant bucket. Hadn't yet tipped over into severe. I was nowhere near self-harming or unable to work. I could still function. But my defenses were breaking down down in the biggest way and it was a very very dark mindset that i was seeing things through
0: coming up i talk more with brit about living with the reality of the climate crisis how that's changed her life and how she tried to change the lives of a bunch of energy executives in a zoom talk she gave it was awkward Hey, I'm off the mountain and in my usual studio for a minute. We have been hearing from you about anxiety around climate change for quite a while. Right before the pandemic, we posed a question to you, similar to what Britt and I are talking about in this episode. We asked, when you take a minute to slow down and force yourself to focus on climate change, what do you think about? How do you feel? And then what
1: happens next? We both like kids but we agree that this is not the world that we want to leave them and it's very awkward to even have a conversation with my parents about how they're not gonna have grandkids it breaks my heart because I have a three year old who has never seen snow really not more than an inch or two not like what her older sister has seen and every day it breaks my heart and I feel like I'm the only person around caring i have four nieces and nephews all under the age of 8 and i just feel like they're doomed and
0: i don't feel like i can do anything about it for me climate change is all i can think about it's not just something i i sort of retrieve or think about on the side it's it's all there is because it is it is something that looms in the future of my generation
1: um i feel a lot of jealousy towards people in other generations They had kids in a time when they really felt like the future was going to be better than the past.
0: Thank you for your stories. Climate grief falls squarely in the death, sex, and money ethos, something we think about a lot and is extremely hard to talk about. If you are listening to this episode today and nodding along, you can check out our show notes for links to climate anxiety talking groups. You can find a place to unpack this a little bit more. And if there's more you'd like to tell us, you can email anytime to deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. We are also still collecting your stories about estrangement for an upcoming episode, estrangement from single relationships or from entire communities that you've decided to distance yourself from. You can send your voice memos to us again at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure This is Death, Sex, and Money.
1: I'm Anna Sale.
0: So, I want to make sure I understand, as you were contemplating whether to become a parent, Mm -hmm. did you end up having a moment of clarity, of yes, we're going to do
1: this, and here's why? Yes. And what was that for you? Well, when boiling it all down... The decision to not have a child felt like a commitment to fear. And then on the flip side, deciding to have a child felt like a commitment to joy in the face of all this. And really, by that point when we decided, I had moved out of this really black and white thinking around the crisis where it was all doom or it was all pretending it's not happening. (laughs) And... The the shock of first putting on the climate trauma g- goggles is not at all the way that I'm feeling today. And I can see lots of potential for love and care and connection, even amidst horrible truths. And that feels like a way better way to spend the time that I've got on this planet. But other people, I think, have really good reasons as to why they don't have kids in the climate crisis that aren't rooted in foreclosure of the future and fear, and they make a lot of sense. They just weren't the ones that were resonant for my decision. I feel like there's, like, a choice to decide to
0: try to become pregnant that's pretty, like, is this on or is this off? And then there's uh, how do I feel about being a parent and how do I feel that this child is here that... um is a much more complicated set of feelings that are constantly evolving. Yeah. So have you found being a, being a mother, holding your child, when you do have moments of thinking about the climate crisis and your child is looking up at you, like, um, does it feel clear,
1: the decision? I had pictured what it would be like to be in the company of my child and have those thoughts and what that might feel like to be holding them and maybe be overwhelmed with sadness or a thought of, I am just so terribly sorry. But it's much more about celebrating this amazing, funny, cute human um He's also something that then cements me to this work. You know, there's not a day where I can't have my eyes open to the crisis, and it just makes me really resolved and convicted to to working with others on it. And knowing that his life is meaningful no matter what may come.
0: I was interested in your work. You surveyed young people in a number of countries about their own feelings and emotions around climate, and what you found, that it wasn't just anxiety about what was happening on the planet. Like, what what are the different ways that you found that it's manifesting for people, for young people in particular?
1: Yeah, so it's not just that young people who are feeling climate anxious are feeling bad because the environment isn't doing well. We found that this distress is, is significantly linked to feelings of being betrayed, betrayed by governments and lied to by leaders. When young people are thinking about the climate, being distressed by it, observing the news, seeing the lack of action despite all the talk, all of this is incredibly injurious to a young person who feels like the adults have left the building. They're not being cared for. Right, And this complete lack of trust and faith in others' ability to do the right thing is traumatizing itself. Meaning also that, you know, if action were to be taken, if solidarity were to be found, if adults were showing up in a way that made young people on the whole feel connected, cared for, protected, that a lot of the distress would be eased. Will you...
0: You you write about a a talk you gave to a group of energy executives from Nordic countries, correct? Mm -hmm. And what happened at the end of your talk? Will you tell that story? Sure,
1: yeah. So I had this rare opportunity to speak to a bunch of executives working in coal, oil, and gas. And I gave them a fireside chat about the history of denial in the fossil fuel industry. I focused on, you know, what their industry has done in terms of the corporate malfeasance and the widespread irresponsible behavior, you know, cherry picking data, planting fake experts, that sort of thing to knowingly confuse the public. Outright denial in order to protect profits. So So you present this in your talk. Is it in person? It's not, unfortunately. It's on Zoom. There's 50 people, almost all of them men. I'm much younger than them. I'm a woman. I'm talking about all this tough emotional stuff. And at the end of the talk, I invited questions. And I really was hoping to meet them heart to heart as people rather than as, you know, representations of a corporation. So, so was, interesting. So, okay. Okay. <laughs> so then what happened? I was really really thinking, okay, this might this might lead to some openings. Um total failure. <laughs> the Q&A was completely silent. And I mean painfully silent. 50 people on a Zoom call. You're inviting responses. And I was treading water trying to stoke the conversation for five minutes. It, I mean, you know, it felt like forever. And took a long time until one guy courageously said, I think it's very painful and difficult for us to be reminded of the horrible things we do. Hmm. So it did feel like a personal attack. And then another man said... I think that I am of the age where I will not die of climate change, but that does not bode well for my children. Wow. Yeah. So they were getting to the heart of it, but I was then reacting. You know, I was so uncomfortable. It was so awkward that I was failing to facilitate well and then, the host of the meeting very abruptly adjourned it. And we all logged off on this terribly tense note. Hmm. So- How'd you feel about it after? Awful, 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 awful. I felt like I had just abjectly failed to do what I said I was going to do. So I debriefed with a colleague of mine who is a climate-aware therapist to say, what could I have done better? And she said, you are taking on these executives' emotions as your own. That's emotional transference. And what if you reframed what you had just done? What if nothing about what you just did needs to be changed? What if it was actually perfect? (laughs) But it was after, you know, I think it was later that night, I got an email from one of the participants who said, you know, sorry that that, didn't generate more conversation. I've heard from many people it was just extremely overwhelming Mm. to watch that presentation. I want to talk with you a bit about um,
0: the coping mechanisms that you came across and then found yourself integrating into your own life. I want you to narrate about when you have an uncomfortable feeling Mm -hmm. and what you think would be helpful for more of us to do when we encounter uncomfortable feelings around climate, mm-hmm. because I think that that discomfort is probably why I don't read till the end of articles. Mm-hmm. It's probably also why um, you know I do like put a lot of faith into technological salvation mm-hmm. um What should I do instead?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that we can all slow down when we feel the emotions as a first step. So, I mean, when you start feeling your personal anxiety trigger, whatever it is, you're skipping ahead to the end of the article. You start thinking about carbon capture technologies, <laughs> whatever <laughs> I it think might you're talking be. Talking about it, it must happen. to right? Happen, right? <laughs> We're just waiting um, to be self-compassionate by allowing yourself to, without shame, be curious about the feelings and start to orient yourself towards them. There's a big fear that they're going to overwhelm us and take away all our joy. But then from experiencing them, you will learn, hey, okay, you can live with them. So it's an incredibly simple thing to just say sit with your feelings, but it's actually really, really hard for a lot of people to do.
0: And what's, what do you feel like has been the consequence of that? Like n- my emotional response writ large, like what has that meant that you just can't take it in because it's too big?
1: Well, it allows a lot of people to turn away from the crisis by not letting the feelings in, by offsetting the distress in a belief that there's something coming to save us. And that takes away the parts of ourselves that can be responsible right now and tend to the problem, stay with the problem in the present moment rather than turn away out of self-preservation and that's challenging when it's so emotionally difficult to have our eyes both open to the crisis but it's also hugely strengthening knowing that we're doing it in mass collectives of people so these abilities to sit with the emotions and allow them to be there is actually really crucial to climate action at all um speaking of children I have preschool pickup
0: in Berkeley, so Oh
1: gosh, better get going. <laughs> it's a long drive. Yeah, I was just hearing an it.
0: owl behind us, right? I heard you hear that, that
1: too, yeah. <laughs> yeah, someone cool. hooting.
0: That's Britt Ray, author and researcher who is studying the mental health effects of climate change. Her book is called Generation Dread Finding Purpose in an Age of Climate Anxiety. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. This episode was produced by Zoe Azoulay and Afi Yellow Duke. The rest of our team includes Julia Furlan, Emily Botin, and Andrew Dunn. Our intern is Gabriela Santana. And thank you to Nick Vander Kolk for his help on this episode. The Reverend John DeLour and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. You can find the show at Death Sex Money on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm on Instagram at Anna Sale Picks, that's P I C S. We have a link in our show notes to find out more about Brit's work, along with some other resources to find out more about mental health support and how to find community around your feelings about climate change. And Brit told me on our walk back out that the talk she gave to the Energy Execs, she later heard that they gave it unanimously positive reviews. Sometimes being made to feel uncomfortable is just what we need. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC.